Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. I'm Dave Cates, President and CEO of Denison Mines Corp. Uh, we're a uranium development company focused in the Athabasca Basin region of northern Saskatchewan. Market cap in the range of a billion dollars Canadian, uh, dual listed, trade on the TSX under DML and on the NYSE American under DNN. David, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing well. well you, you've had a busy couple of weeks, though, I suspect. Oh, we've had a busy, busy summer so far. I'm looking forward to taking a little bit of time off. That's that's for sure. But a uh, perfect time for an update. And uh, I always love the stimulating questions you throw my way. <laughs> okay. Let's let's live up to that challenge. Um, okay, well, the exciting things that's happened since we spoke back in April is obviously the JCU-UEX deal, right? And we spoke to UEX, got their perspective. We'd love to get your perspective and sort of dig into the weeds there in terms of um, how that all came about, right? So you were a bit slow out of the gates. You almost missed uh, the opportunity, didn't you? Well, the truth is, uh, yeah, it was a surprise to us to see uh, that announcement from UEX. And um, we were actually quite quick in terms of responding to that with our uh, our offer to uh, OURD on the sale of JCU. And it was not a hard thing for us to pursue. Um, you know, we, we've, we've got a 90% interest in our flagship Wheeler River property. JCU owns 10% of Wheeler River. And the value uh, that was on the table there was was certainly far in excess of uh, that UEX deal price, and so we were confident that we could come in and and offer more uh, and still have a great deal for our shareholders. So we did, and uh, you know, from from there, as these things do, they they played out to a point where we were able able to reach a, I think, a fair agreement between ourselves and, and UEX, where we would uh, split JCU and and be co-owners. Two things, one. <laughs> Why didn't your business partner, JCU, tell you about it? And two, was making a public announcement the only option available to you about the uh, your intentions or your desire to make a bid? Well, Matt, for the first one, I mean, you, you got to pick up the phone to Japan to find out. Um, look, we, we are an obvious uh, party that would be interested in those assets, right? Uh, JCU's focus had been funding Wheeler River over the last several years. And we were in communication with JCU about our future plans for the project. And, and actually, we understood that their plan was to fund the project through to construction. So uh, I'm fair to say, like, it, it, was an, it was a surprise for us to understand that they were selling that business. Uh, but, but only they could tell you why they wouldn't talk to an obvious buyer that would have every reason um, you know, under the sun to pay the maximum price uh, for it. In terms of the way we approached it, um, look, there are obviously contracts in place between UEX and uh, and JCU OURD. Uh, we followed what's a pretty normal playbook for these types of situations in that we made an offer to uh, OURD. Our offer was binding, so they literally could sign it back and we would be bound to purchase it for that $40.5 million. And that became something that required disclosure because our shareholders needed to know that we'd made an offer that could be accepted and would be binding uh, on us. And so that led to our public announcement. But the, the, the bit that is unusual, you had to make a public 
statement in the sense, in the terms of a, a press release to actually let them know. So clearly, well, that's not, that's not exactly right. Okay, I mean, we 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 made the offer to them directly. Um, okay, but the fact is that the offer was made on a binding basis. So you know, the offer was issued to OURD, and it was for them to sign. It's like when you're buying a house, right? You've made an offer, you've signed it. All it takes is the other guy to sign it back. And so that offer was made to them. The public announcement was really just to advise our shareholders that a binding offer had been made and they could sign it back and we would be bound to. Okay, that. okay. That's that's interesting because do you feel that JCU or URD were under any restrictions because of their conversations with UEX? Or did you, you, you're aware of those or not? Well, look, I mean, we were not privy to their contract um, with uh, between UEX and OURD. Uh, you know, that was um, not made public. And at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty typical for uh, counterparties to have non-solicits or restrictions like that. So, you know, we, we didn't know, but we certainly were able to surmise based on, you know, common practice that there's a risk that they wouldn't be able to negotiate with us based on some sort of non-solicitor lockup under an existing agreement. But that didn't really um, change why the disclosure was made. Uh, it, it, you know, We really wanted to make the best offer possible and to make it as strong an offer as possible, we felt it was important for it to be binding. And that's really what triggered uh, the disclosure on our side. But as it turns out, they couldn't sign it because they were bound. Did, how, well, did, how, look, did mean, I, how did I, I they respond to you? I mean, I'm intrigued Yeah, look, it. I mean, I, I don't know the details on all of that, um, you know, because that, that was not our contract that we were with. So at the end of the day, I mean, we won't go into exactly how the sausage is made, right? Nobody, nobody really wants to know any of that. But um, at the end of the day, like the the approaches were between UEX and, and Denison that that resulted in the sort of productive outcome. Great, that's where I was going then. So if, I was wondering how bound JC or URD's hands were. I did did you get a response from them at all, in any way, shape, or form? Say yes, no, we can't. Yeah, look, you know, there were other than to other than to, to acknowledge. Um, no, there were there was no no response okay. right. from URD. So you, UEX, it seemed obvious, I, I hope, to everyone that there needed to be some sort of gentleman's agreement. It's going to be the best way forward. Otherwise, it's going to get nasty and legal and expensive and also and break time, you know, time consuming, quite frankly, right? No one wants that. You've got a business to run. So who initiated contact? Uh, what were those conversations? How long did they take? Yeah, look, I mean, without going into all the, all the detail, um, you know, we were in touch with with Roger. You know, early on, um, on the announcement, and there was correspondence that continued throughout. Um, but it's, you know, I think when you when you sort of unpack this, right? We we knew that there was real value in those assets, and we knew that our best chance uh, was to highlight the value of those assets. Not knowing anything behind the scenes of how it might go, but knowing that money is typically something that uh, matters, right? So that's that's where we came from is a, a perspective where we could add great value to our shareholders, but at the same time, bring a meaningful increase in value to OURD and looking for that to sort of open up uh, the, the possibility for us to participate. Do you wish you'd had a conversation with UEX before you spoke 
you, you, you made that offer to chase the year because you both ended up paying way more than the, the UBX deal, didn't you? Yeah, look, I, I don't know that um, I don't know that that outcome, you know, a conversation at that stage would have would have changed the outcome. Um, I think UX had a view that they had a very strong deal. And so why would they uh, why would they open it up to another party to, to make up for that for that deal? So or to, to disrupt that deal? Uh, I, I don't know. You know, uh, we're, we're happy with how it went and we would have been happy to acquire all of it for $40 million. Uh, that would have been perfectly fine by us. Do you think the, the value of 40 million bucks or 41 million bucks or whatever it was, do you think, wasn't there, so five, there's also a $5 million component in terms of, uh, in there as well, wasn't there? So it's, it's yeah, that sort of million. got, that sort, that sort of got wiped out. There was a bit of a, uh, a working capital adjustment at one point and, and, and as, as the deal was uh, amended up to the 40, I think that basically came out of there. Got it. Okay. So it's basically, basically 40. Got it. Okay. So let, let me, let, so let, let me talk about value here. Okay. You are happy. You would have been happy to pay that price for those assets, right? So you feel that's good value with 50% of it. It's, Still good value, but it's not necessarily the deal that you, you wanted. You wanted all of it, right? Do you think that the the, the value being attributed um, to these assets for you is the same as the value being attributed to these assets for UEX? Well, it's yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it would be in the eye of the beholder. Uh, there are some different assessments that some people could make, given that we are have the controlling interest in Wheeler River. So... You know, if, if, if you look at that 10% of Wheeler River as one of the most valuable parts of GCU, then obviously that that incremental indirect 5% to us with our controlling position is, is potentially worth more than you would see on a minority share, right? Those typical minority discounts on these sorts of things, because one of the parties is in control of all of those decisions and, um, you know, has comfort around that position. But like... It's pretty, the value is quite deep in this portfolio. And, you know, we, we have the benefit of uh, extensive research analyst coverage. Uh, UEX has, has some coverage, but, but not to the same degree. And the feedback on the transaction from our side has been very positive. I mean, we have seen target price increases on the back of it. We have seen research analysts estimate the value of our half of the assets, you know, being $100 million uh, above what we've paid. Uh, so that's even for us with our larger market cap, that's, that moves the needle. Um, now UEX is obviously a smaller company and if they're capturing the same type of value, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great acquisition for them too. It is if they are, and if they do, right. Um, you mentioned it 50, 50, nice, easy, clean deal, gentlemen's agreement, 50, 50, lovely, shake hands, let's go. Given the timing of, you know, when these projects could come online and, you know, the propensity of Cameco to get going with Millennial or, or Kekovic with, uh, with, with Arano, uh, those are much longer term, longer timeline, longer horizon to value creation and, and line of sight to revenue, right? Your project, the Wheeler River project, is the most near term in, in, in that sense, relative near term, okay? Um, was there a conversation between you two in terms of saying, we want 100%, we'll be prepared to give you a little bit of each of the others instead? Or was it just a case of expediency, said 50-50 was the, the best way to do this? Yeah, look, at this point, it's 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 a 50-50, and uh, both both sides seem to be happy with that. What happens down the road, uh, you know, to be subject to us talking about it, we would love to have 100% of Wheeler River. 
Uh, but but at the same time, we're really happy to have uh, you know half of the thirty percent that JCU owns of Millennium, and it's something like thirty three percent of of Kigovic, and 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 even we're we're pleased to be in on Christie Lake. So, you know, I'm I'm not sure that we would be actively looking to to trade down any of those positions, but we of course would love to have a hundred percent of Wheeler. Right. Okay. But there wasn't part of the discussion. So you're saying? No, no. Our focus was on really just I think de-risking this transaction for both sides. And, and getting that JCU deal done and, and the 50-50 was a way that we could both accept it happening. Right. It was, it was kind of an elegant deal, actually, because you had the money to be able to lend to Roger. I think, I think they had the money lined up to do their smaller deal, but when the deal size increased, you know, the, the ability for them to do that would, will have changed. So you lending the money was quite an elegant solution. Again, was that, was that, was that a long discussion or is it like no this is the right thing to do i mean how to how to come about yeah no that look i think that was an important part of our transaction and we saw great value in doing that because uh you know the 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 way this deal ends up being structured is that uh uex acquires jcu and then back to back sells half to us but we we needed to leverage the existing arrangement between ourd and uex and so for us one of the greatest risks would be that there would be a problem with that transaction being completed for us to then acquire our half. And so by lending that money, we've totally de-risked the execution of that. The transaction is closed exactly as we want it to. The, the sale of half of JCU onto us has happened exactly as it was supposed to. And, uh, and Roger's out there, uh, looks like he's done a nice job of lining up the capital to, to now pay us back. So it really was about making sure that everything happened per plan and that there would be no sort of external factor like reliance on the market for UEX to be able to fund its share in the timeline that we had. And, and I, th- I think we're both really happy with how that's gone because one of the larger risks in this whole deal would be the Japanese in terms of uh, actually concluding the transaction on time and, and per plan. Was there a moment when the market came up, the Iranian market came, well, a lot of commodities have come up, but Iranian market is, has, came off, we thought, actually, that could be a problem for UEX to raise the money, which could good news for us. So just a bit, little bit. You can tell me. Yeah, look, I, I don't. I, I think there was. We certainly followed the market to know that. Um, maybe I would put it this way: that, that probably UEX would have been was maybe more grateful than they thought at the get go uh, to have the loan because of the way the market did come off. Um, but but yeah, at the end of the day, we weren't too worried about that because again, in our scenario, no matter how that had worked out. Uh, we would have been comfortable and pleased to pay 40, 41 million for the whole thing. And so if the debt didn't work out and UX wasn't able to raise the money, we, we'd have been really okay to just take all those shares of I bet. Of I bet. So, so no, I, I think I think it worked out fine. And, and UEX is probably, uh, I won't, don't want to speak for Roger, but was probably happy at work that we arranged it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, for, for, for sure. But um, let, let's say if they, they, couldn't, they couldn't have done it, would you have extended the loan period? Well, the loan the loan did have a, a provision to go up to six months. Right. So, okay. Uh, it did give them. It was a pretty friendly loan. It would give them good latitude to find an opportunity to to pay us back. It was not meant to be predatory. You know, it was right. it was meant okay. to protect us. Um, in that, if they were unable to, or if there was catastrophe, we would take that that hundred percent of JCU. But it was it was not meant to be predatory. So no, they they would have had good latitude. They'd had a good latitude, okay? Because because I think market came off, and I think that a few a few comments about the price at which it was 
raised. Um, but I think you know t timing these things is it, there's a there's not even an art to it. You, you got to take what you, what you get, um, and the market will be as generous as it as it ever is, um, one way or the other. Um, should we should we move on from that? Because I think you're not going to give me too much more on the JCU because I think it's a difficult conversation and. Um, I understand some of the thinking around how the deal went down. Let's talk about what you're going to do because, um, obviously, Willow River, I, as you say, you, 95% of it, you're, 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 you're pleased to get that extra 5%. But, um, some announcements out recently around, um, high grading, uh, high grade uh, results there. Do you want to tell us what's going on? Yeah. Look, we've been, uh, very busy on, on Wheeler River over the last two years, uh, especially this year. Uh, we are we're in the field uh, in, in the process of testing a five spot commercial test pattern at Phoenix for ISR mining. And so we have had some updates uh, in the last uh, month or so uh, two two real meaningful uh, news developments. First was uh, part of our completion of this commercial scale pattern. And, and you remember what we're really trying to get at here is a test, a field test where we actually operate a commercial pattern with water, uh, large scale pump tests, and then we add a tracer element so that we can actually follow solution through an injection well and recover it in the surrounding wells so that we can uh, apply for a, a, a you know regulatory permissions to next year run an actual live uh, lixivian leach test in the same pattern. So that's the real prize for this year. But in doing that, we were installing a series of monitoring wells outside of the test pattern. And, um, you know, of course, we have a resource model like like all, all, all advanced stage projects would have. And one of the monitor, one of the monitoring wells um, encountered high grade uranium, about just shy of nine meters, 22 percent uh, uranium U308 equivalent. And um, it was in a spot where we had actually modeled quite a thin interval of low grade. And on that section, it definitely looks like this interval would be uh, an extension of the high-grade domain that is defines Phoenix Zone A. And in particular, this hit is in our phase one. So this is now with our freeze wall configuration, we have phases of mining. And this, all of our test work is happening in the first phase. And this high-grade looks like it could be a very, you know, solid extension of that high-grade zone right in phase one. And, and we're going to need to follow it up because our timeline has us uh, initiating feasibility study work later this year uh, for completion next year. And we're going to need to have this resource uh, model updated for, for this result. So we will likely be out there later this year with our exploration team doing a little bit of delineation around that. But this is, is quite a potentially, potentially is quite significant in that anywhere where we find more high grade in those high 22% you know, ranges in this phase one means we're adding pounds in that first part of our mining plan, which, and they're good pounds if they're at that kind of grade. So that was unexpected, but very positive for us. The second um, meaningful development is on the metallurgical side and the processing plant. So, in parallel to all this field work, where we have a metallurgical program that's designed to work ourselves all the way through the metallurgy of the well field, and then ultimately into the processing plant to finalize our flow sheet, which is important for the environmental assessment and ultimately the feasibility study. So we've done a number of specialized tests with intact core. So when you're reading our news release, 
Um, we talk about a few different tests. We talk about column tests and we talk about core leach tests. So the core leach tests are the ones that are representative of the rock in situ, like undisrupted. It's a core sample taken from the deposit that is largely intact. And we will leach, uh, run our leach tests through that core rather than pulverizing it and packing it into a column and agitating it. It's really meant to demonstrate the type of leaching we will get out of the ISR well field. So number of tests carried out on this, and it's confirmed something that we announced uh, you know, over a year ago um, in, in 2020, around the possibility that we would have higher grades in our uranium bearing solution. So a higher head grade for the solution that comes out of the well field. And we made a decision based on all of these tests that we would actually increase our head grade for the project from 10 grams a liter uh, uranium to 15 grams a liter uranium. And I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but it is a 50% increase in the head grade and already high head grade. And that does have uh, some potentially very meaningful implications because just on the simple part of it here, like if we're going to produce 6 million pounds a year at a, at a 10 gram per liter head grade, it requires a certain volume of solution to be pulled from the well field and processed. Well, at a 15 gram per liter head grade, if we still produce 6 million pounds, we're going to require fewer liters of solution to come out of that well field, which means we have opportunities on operating costs or, or both potentially on capex and that we don't necessarily have to build our plant to handle the larger volume associated with 10 grams per liter. On the flip side, if we wanted to keep the same plant design, we should be producing more pounds. So if we run the same number of liters of solution through the plant that we modeled in the PFS, with that 15 grams a liter head grade, we should now be producing, you know, it goes from, from basically from 6 million to 9 million pounds a year in production just on that 10 to 15 switch. So that is something that we are going to work on optimizing. But from here on out, we're changing all of our uh, test work for the plant design to assume that we will have 15 grams a liter head grade. And that's another one of these positive developments over the last two years. You can kind of take the freeze wall versus freeze dome trade-off study. All of these things are giving the market a preview of what's going to go into the feasibility study. And they're all generally showing up quite positive in terms of the, the test work proving up what we're trying to do and actually giving us better results than we saw in the PFS. Well, well let's, talk, let's talk about that. Okay, When we first started talking, you are about 300 million market cap, you're 800 today, right? You, there are a few yeah. quite cute things that you've done along the way, which we, we, we've talked about and said I liked, et cetera. But 800 million market cap for a company which has technically you know, got a ways to go. It's got to show that it, well, in terms of the EIA and you know, all your kind of ESG First Nations, getting your permits, getting your licenses, all of those things, those things haven't gone away. So you know, until you can deliver what, the, you know, what, what it's going to take to get those permits and licenses, it's all kind of like, it's a nice science exercise. Because if you don't get those, you, you know, you're going to have some problems. So if you don't mind, can you sort of take us back to the, the stepping stones that you have delivered in the last couple of years? Because I want to kind of get it all in one place, mm -hmm. in one conversation. The stepping stones from when we first started talking to yeah. today and the ones that you've got left, which you think will get you that permit, will get you the licenses that you need. Well, there's two... There's
There's two different questions in there though, Matt. Like um, one is, is how do we explain the progression in market cap? Another is, you know, about the project, right? So I think the really important thing on the market cap side is to understand that our company has actually not been static. So if we go back a few years ago, we were 60% on Wheeler River. So things have happened since then. You know, we, we took out Cameco for their, you know, I think we were about 66%. We took them out for about 24%. That got us up to the 90. Like, yeah, we've, we've issued stock for that, but we, we acquired assets that were accretive there, right? Uh, we've, we've added this last 5% and added JCU and all the accretion that might be there. We, we bought two and a half million pounds of physical uranium. That's an asset that we have now that we didn't have, uh, you know, a year ago. We've, um, we've worked on the uh, preliminary economic assessment for Waterbury Lake and the THT deposit as an ISR mine. That's producing, you know, plus $100 million in PV on that. We still own the McLean Lake Mill at 22.5%. We're, we've reported high grade at uh, Discovery at McLean South. Like, there's a, it's a dynamic it's a dynamic process for us. It's not just sort of seeing Wheeler alone. Now you take Wheeler though, and you look at what we've done. And, and part of me says like, it's hard to trust me for, um, you know, what the company is worth and, you know, what each of our, you know, transactions represents in terms of value, because I'm clearly biased on all that. But I looked at the, like the research analysts and where have we seen target price increases over the last few years? And we've seen them on, on all of those things, you know, acquiring Cameco, this JCU deal. We saw target price increases on the uranium purchasing because the analysts could see how it would change the cost of capital for us in the future or future dilution, seeing that we've already bought that $100 million of uranium, we can use it as leverage for credit. All of those things have stimulated target price increases. And so it's not just about ticking Wheeler along. That's happening. We are de-risking. We are getting, I mean, we, we, we have seen target price increases as we have de-risked at different times. Different analysts have different sensitivities. Some wanted to see, you know, the results of the test pattern. Others waited for the proof of concept news release. You know, we don't get everybody on all the same news release, but each of these de-risking items has often triggered one of the guys to say, oh, you know what, this is, this makes me change my, my price to nav multiple or my assumed discount rate. All of those things are really reflecting the value of de-risking. And so that is happening while we're building the company and the asset mix is changing. So you got to really look at it in that dynamic basis because we are a dynamic company. We are not single asset with, you know, basically saying, here's the study and here's the value and we're going to build it. And the uranium price is the uranium price. Like we have many moving pieces that are sort of poking at that value uh, for from different angles. Okay. So that's the, that's the first bit. Okay, yeah. that's the valuation thing. How do you get from 300 to 800? What are the things you've done? You've laid out some of those things. And I think timing has also helped you on, on some of those, right? You raised money when uranium was on, on the up. You bought pounds. We were one of the first to buy pounds. That was novel. You got credit for that. You know, I, I think others followed not so much. Um, let's, let's get to the technical bit, right? You've got to show that you can deliver this. You've gone from, you know, freeze cap to, you know, freeze wall. And, you know, we, we talked about some of the testing that you're going to be doing going forward. But again, this is the hard bit. This is the important bit. What, are, what have you got lined up? What are you being told that you're going to need to, to deliver for them, people to even consider 
issuing you with the, the permits you need, the licenses that you need? Yeah, look, that's an ongoing process. Right now we're in the thick of technical studies on the different elements of the environmental impact uh, statement and the, the EA process. Uh, we're in the thick of community consultation and, and consultation with interested parties. Um, like I, I'm sure I've said before, it's, 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 it's regulated by the CNSC and it's a relatively scientific process. And so it really it, well, it's not. It's an emotional process. It's an emotional decision, though, right? So that you know, if you had to weight well, the the science bit versus the the emotional component to get you what you need to do, where, where would you? What's that no, balance? Look, it, it 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 is largely a scientific process in terms of studying and understanding the impacts. Now, I will say that some of the impacts may not be as scientific as others, or some of the potential impacts, right? But, um, but the process is quite structured in terms of studying the project and the interactions it would have with different parts of the environment. Some of it's the human environment. Those are areas where it might be more subjective. But that process is, under, is well understood and our team is working through that. There's not a lot of uh, glamorous things to report around a series of environmental studies, right? Um, but that, but that, is, that is ongoing and we are learning about it. We have taken a genuine approach to understanding the feedback that we have from community or consultation with interested parties. And that's why you're seeing our feasibility study has not been initiated because we wanted to work through this first phase of the environmental or the EA process to collect the feedback so that we can reflect that feedback in our designs when we actually put the feasibility study together because we do really value the feedback we get, we know that it's important to reflect that feedback in our designs to get to the point that you're getting at. So, if when we talk, when we talk some of the African uranium companies, right? They're they're, like, they're you know they're they're much lower grade compared to you guys in Athabasca Basin, but they go jurisdictional risk low, pro business want us to get on permits get issued very very quickly, right? You guys, and we've seen there's some lessons to be learned. Baseload, I think, more more recently um, with the Shadow Project, we've got um, other incidences, not, not as severe as this, from, from the some of the bigger players in the Athabasca Basin. What is there anything to be learnt from the way that people have gone about this, or is each story unique and individual, depending on you know where you where you are physically? Well, yeah, it, it does vary uh, based on precise geography. That that is true. If we're talking about um, indigenous engagement and consultation, things like that, there are uh, different groups that have connections uh, to different parts of the Athabasca Basin. Uh, so that can vary uh, in terms of the, the the different indigenous communities or nations uh, that that you're talking to. We we have a clear understanding of the uh, the groups that that are uh, connected to Wheeler River because we're operating in an existing corridor of mining between MacArthur River and Key Lake. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I mean, this is something we've been focused on. Uh, at, a, at, a, at a corporate level, it's a priority for us, um, but we, we have reached an agreement with the English River First Nation around all of our exploration activity in their traditional territory, and not just at Wheeler River. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's confidential agreement, but sets out the basic parameters for how we will do business together and how we'll share benefits from our exploration. This is, as far as we understand, a first of its kind agreement amongst junior exploration companies in Northern Saskatchewan for, for uranium. Uh, and 
look, it's it's an important agreement for us because English River First Nations is an important group. And we've also agreed with them to fund their participation in, in the environmental assessment. So we have a participation and funding agreement in place that ensures that they have the capacity to actively participate in this environmental assessment and for us to be able to work with them to design a project that is 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 welcome by all. So to answer the question around permitting and stuff, you know, you, you, you talked earlier about hitting your deadlines. The, the permitting licensing is out of your control. Well, it certainly was last time we, we, we spoke. So has anything changed to give you even 1% more confidence of your ability to deliver against that? Because that, that, that's the thing that's thrown at the Athabasca companies, right? Compared to elsewhere in the world, the US, the Australians, the, the, the African uranium companies, they go, look, you know, we, we may not be as high grade. We may not be as big. The payback may not be as quick. The margins aren't there. But at least we know we're going to get into production. The Athabasca well, guys can't yeah. tell you that, right? That, that's what they throw right. at you. So what, what have you got to say to yeah. that? Well, I, I can tell you that uh, the United States is is no better, it's worse. Um, the number of uh, litigious interest groups in the United States around any permitting is, there's no doubt that jurisdiction would be more challenging. Um, what I will say about Canada is that the, the system is is structured. We understand the process where we, you know, to, to, and, and is thorough, um, right? So. At the end of the day, there's a there. There really, it's designed to have a very high level of confidence and comfort amongst all parties that the project has been properly vetted, which is a good thing for for people who are investing capital into the jurisdiction. Where where the process is out of our control um, is is the fact really that once we've made our submissions, the regulatory agency, the CNSC and the Saskatchewan Ministry of the Environment, which cooperate on uranium projects uh, in Saskatchewan together, you know, they have duties that they have to carry out as part of that regulatory process. And we can't control how long it takes them to go through those things. There are sort of service standards in terms of expected timelines. It's not a wide open uh, timeline. We have, uh, you know, estimates in, in our schedules around how long that will take. But of course, as soon as anyone hands anything over to a regulatory agency, whether it be in Africa, Australia, or the United States, it, it's, it's, it's now then out of your control. What we can do to make it um, you know, a, a go as successfully as possible is the kind of work we're doing now, where we're trying to collect the information, trying to participate, engage people to participate, to make sure we have their perspectives incorporated into our project so that when it is uh, time to hand it to the regulators, we have as few surprises as possible and that we've already taken that input into consideration. And that's why, again, we've our feasibility study is, has not been started because we're trying to make sure we have all of that reflected. So it's it's not entirely out of our control, but it's I would say it's not that different than, frankly, any other uh, place where a regulator ultimately has, uh, you know, the say on it, which is true of pretty much all the jurisdictions. The, the processes may be a little less rigorous, maybe in certain African jurisdictions in terms of the timeline that the regulator will spend on it. But definitely in the United States, you'd have as much or, or even more difficulty. Right. So your, your 800 million market cap, you think that's fully justified? You've done some smart stuff. Is there any more smart stuff to come? Oh, whatever, whatever, whatever opportunities present themselves. I mean, we we have shown that we are not shy 
to uh, look at the, the market, the space, our company, our assets, and try to do things that add value. So I can't say that there's anything on the radar, but people can trust us to make sure that we're trying to find maximum value out of our assets and for our shareholders, that's for sure. Most of our focus from here and the balance of this year, I'm hoping will be on just Wheeler River. I think we could all use a bit of a break after how busy we've been. I'd like to get our head down and just focus on execution on Wheeler River uh, and get that tracer test uh, done and successful and permit the Lixivian test for next year. Because I think when we talk about those values, uh, the things that we can control, nothing will be more powerful than carrying out a live Lixivian test and showing the market that we have actually been able to produce uranium bearing solution from our well field. Perfect. And the, the one thing which used to be talked about a lot, I'm not hearing it so much now, is this freeze wall. Why is that why is that conversation gone away? I think everyone understands what the technology is. Yeah, it's it's the the freeze wall versus the freeze dome, I think, has really taken uh any of the sort of skepticism off of that because you know, we'll, we'll be using vertical diamond drill holes, totally conventional, being completed, you know, uh, sort of every day of the year, if you will, MacArthur cigar. Uh, and, and the abstractness of creating an underground dome is something that we're not having to explain anymore now that we have this idea of a freeze fence, creating a vertical column um, of the freeze wall around, around the deposit. I think, it, you know, the market has really understood that. They see how simple that is how it'll work um, from an from a execution standpoint, how we won't have to pierce the dome with our ISR wells. All of the things that we saw in making that decision seems to have really put the market at ease around the use of ground freezing technology together with ISR. Whereas the dome, rightly, was bringing some new ideas uh, that you know I think a few investors were having to s- stretch their imagination around. Okay. David, like, I appreciate you coming in. It's a nice to catch up with you. We, we need to see you more regularly than we do. Um, I guess when the tests uh, results come back, that'll be a good time to catch up and sort of see what you can tell us about this. And um, I'm intrigued to see what other kind of cute deals you structure in the meantime. Look, it sounds great. We've got uh, that field test ongoing right now. So we, we should have results for that this fall. And we will be active for the first time this year on exploration. So Hope to uh, hope to have some positive results there that we can share as well. So everyone should stay tuned to the story and uh, keep following this this channel that you've got running, so that we can uh, keep everyone up to date. Beautiful. In fact, do you know what? I've forgotten something. We're, we're going to do one one last one last question. I promise. I do this a lot. <laughs> Another half an hour. Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, right? You yeah. guys, you got you used to control that through UPC. You're no longer doing that. I think that's good. You know, lots of conflicts of interest there. When I, 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 I suspect um, when you, <laughs> but we won't talk about it. Um, you were handed just over five million bucks for the pleasure um, of handing that over to to Sprott. So first of all, what are you doing with that money? Well, it's in our budget, uh, so we're we're spending our money in the field uh, right. on that test. Okay, so that that's just straight to the bottom line. Um, second thing is. Spot Physical Uranium Trust, Spot, Spot, however you want to pronounce it. It kind of caught the eye initially. I think the interest has waned. The market's come off. They've got their 300 million at the market. Again, no one seemed to care. Is this another catalyst moment that's going to come and go? Or, or can they do something meaningful for that spot price? Oh, yeah. Look, I'm, I'm very optimistic on, on what will happen with, with Sprott and the Uranium Trust. Um, what, what, what they're executing on is really a plan that we brought 
as, as manager to the UPC board before that transaction came together. Uh, and that's the use of the ATM uh, to access capital at a lower cost on a more frequent basis versus UPC's prior model, which was relying on high, high premiums to drive large bot deal financings and then these very lumpy uranium purchases where we would be in the market for a period of weeks and then we would be out of the market. I really have high expectations uh, that the structural changes that come with conversion to the trust will create a more direct conduit for investor interest in uranium to translate into uranium market activity. We could not achieve that with the UPC model. Now with the ATM, and, and of course, I'm hopeful that Sprott will advance the US listing that they're required to seek under the agreement struck with UPC. Um, with the liquidity of a US listing, plus the, uh, the, the ATM on a, on a shelf prospectus, there's a real possibility that as investor interest, when those moments of investor interest come into the sector, that investors go buy Sprott units. Sprott prints new units through the ATM and goes buys uranium. And it creates a very direct connection that we see in other commodities, right? You watch the gold ETFs. When money comes into the gold ETFs, they buy gold. The gold price goes up. We could not do that in the structure that we had for UPC. And that's what we were trying to get to. Literally, the barrier was corporate structure. You know, UPC as a corporate could not list in the US uh, as a stockpiler of commodities. As a trust, there's a path to listing in the US. Denison could not manage a trust. We're not a registered you know, fund manager. So this is the combination of that sort of concept with a good, a good manager in Sprott that has a track record, putting that strategy into place. And I think it will take time, but I do see it having a significant impact because I know that this uranium market goes through times where there isn't a buyer. It can be thin. And if Sprott can be there, for 50,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds, because they're raising you know, a few million dollars at a time on the ATM, that over time could have a real impact on the market when an investor, and there are investors that will put 10 million, 50 million, 20 million to work in the sector. If they actually want to put it into the, into the physical market, they could now do that through the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, buy those units, have the ATM issue new units to them, and then Sprott's got to go buy that uranium. It's a much more direct connection. And that's something I think that could really change the way the uranium spot market functions. Why did you why did you want them to go and list on the NYSE? Because it's possible for US institutions to go and buy on the TSX in dollars. So yeah. is it just a Reddit squeeze type function where it's you're accessing a big retail market and you get people excited and that's going to drive the equities component up uh, as a result, which will benefit Sprott, obviously. Or is there something more fundamental to this US listing, which you think uh, it, 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 it you know, demands that they should? Yeah, look, it's just, you know, the, the United States is, is a remarkable capital market. Uh, Canada has a, has a very good resource capital market. The TSX is good, but it is small. And the reality is that we don't have to look too far to see how powerful the liquidity that comes from a US listing is. If you look at Denison, like we are now trading with the investor interest swinging to uh, uranium as part of the clean energy transition, right? We have seen our trading volumes in the US 
typically in the range of like four to six to eight times what we were seeing in Canada. And for the longest time, we had Canadian, you know, Canadian marketplace as a primary market and the U.S. as a sort of secondary on trading volumes. But look, when, when, when the investor interest in the United States swings, it is so powerful. And while it's true that many, many investors can just participate through the TSX, there is something, there's a real, there is still a barrier to those investors, many investors operating on the TSX. And we can see it that US listing just offers so much more liquidity. The key for the Sprott Trust is that the ATM, it, it eats up liquidity, right? It needs to be fed liquidity for it to be used effectively. Now it will work on a smaller scale with lower liquidity, but the ATM has limits in terms of how many units they can issue based on the level of liquidity. If liquidity goes up tenfold, the, the, the flexibility of using the ATM will go up significantly. And that means that the tap that Sprott could create in terms of, or the drain that they could create in terms of pulling uranium out of the market gets wider if the liquidity in that uh, for that trust is increased. So that's that's why I see that being a very important and valuable part of the deal. And that's why we lobbied together with the UPC board to make sure that Sprott not only would fund the uh, US listing process, but they have a requirement to initiate it and pursue it, right? This isn't the sort of thing where, yeah, maybe if we want to, we will. No, they, they, they're contractually required to pursue it and they've, and they've promised the funding to to uh, to see that through. Fantastic. Well, I'm speaking with John Chamberlain next week. We'll uh, get his view on that as well. David, appreciate your time as always. Speak soon. Okay. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.